You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but to some, it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to episode 54 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. Joining me, Gandalf, as always, is Matt and Nathan Van Horn. Welcome back, guys. Good to have you here. And a quick reminder, as always, if you are not subscribed to the podcast, it means two things. One, you are not telling the algorithm that this is worthwhile content, which if you're here joining us for episode 54, you clearly do believe that it's worthwhile content. So please let the algorithm know by making sure you like and subscribe this podcast. And the second thing that's happening is that you're not getting a notification every Tuesday when we drop a new episode discussing the grand narrative of the Bible. So please take care of those things. And finally, if you're feeling really bold, then maybe you want to leave us a message on our website, betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. I assure you we read every single one of those, and they uh, are great encouragement. Even if you're leaving um, maybe a, a helpful criticism, we still view that as an encouragement. So please do that. All right. With all that being said, guys, I'm excited to hear about the subject of, of today's uh, episode because we've kind of... We, we talked about Babel, and then we kind of let that led into a discussion about the divine council and yeah, all, divine all, beings, all and that's this, very interesting. All of this is an elaborate scheme on Matt's part to refuse to let me get to Abraham. <laughs> I, right. I, like I, I'm in the listeners. I'm with y'all. I've I've, I, I've I've been you know we've been lying week after week saying one more week in Babel, one more week in Babel. Um, cause Matt knows after Babel, we talk about Abraham. And so I was, I was talking to Matt earlier in the week and I was like, so are we going to Abraham this week? He's like, well, maybe one more thing. Yeah. Um, it, I, <laughs> I've been hurt before Matt. Yeah, that's right. So the one more thing was, Hey, what about Job? Uh, <laughs> we're not going to do And not in a vacuum. Uh, yeah, not that's in a vacuum. Right. I'm giving Matt a hard time. Uh, a few episodes back, we returned to discussions of, uh, sons of God, the divine council, and that is a very foreign concept, probably for a lot of people listening to this. So it does merit the time to unpack that. And Job is an interesting place uh, to turn and look at that um, because Job is uh, set right around this time, right? Uh, most right. people say whatever Job is written, most people say it's a pre-patriarchal setting. So one of the things that happened for me, and I mentioned it a couple episodes back when I read Gerald McDermott's book, God's Rivals, which I highly recommend, by the way, uh, if you're wanting a uh, more condensed, less academic version of that book, uh, Michael Heiser's written, and it's not an exact exchange, but it touches on the same topics, a book called Supernatural, and that's that's interesting. Um, I don't know that I'd completely agree with Dr. Heiser on all of his conclusions, but Dr. Heiser has been most helpful for me. A lot to chew on, at least. Yeah, a lot to chew on. And in fact, everybody I've recommended the book to immediately came back as they get a few chapters in saying, I don't like this. This is really uncomfortable. You know, you know, Pastor, you've lost your mind or something like that. But then once they get through the book, it's like, 
okay, I need to think about this. There's there's stuff I need to chew on. So we've already introduced elements of this, but this is the result of a paradigm shift. So Dr. Heiser had that paradigm shift. And th- then as I became aware of this kind of thinking from, for instance, uh, Gerald McDermott and Michael Heiser, and then I finally got up the courage to mention it to my friend Nathan Van Horn and saying, hey, you need to at least think about this, and which is always intimidating because Nathan is more educated than I am, but his his expertise is more in New Testament stuff. Uh, but it, it it it's really been a paradigm shift for both of us. Is is that a fair statement, Nathan? I, I would certainly say, and I think this speaks to a lot of people. It's not that people have never heard this language, correct? But but we've we've never connected the dots about. Okay, if you look at all of these passages together, what does it suggest? So, you know, for Matt, Matt knows I'm really big into connecting the dots, biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tend to do that with the earthly component of the biblical story and Correct. completely not do that with the heavenly component of the biblical story. And yet at so many key junctures, creation, flood, Babel, right? Um, at so many key junctures, we get this window. And I think that's why Job is interesting to the discussion is is how Job opens, right? Job is set in, in a pre-patriarchal us, the land that Job is mentioned to be from, is mentioned in the table of nations in, in Genesis chapter 10. Um, right. So not even getting into all the critical discussions of whether or not Job is historical, he's certainly assumed to be a historical figure in the Bible. We mentioned uh, Ezekiel 14 and James 5, and we'll come back to that later. Um, But whether or not Job is historical, scholars are pretty broadly in agreement that his story is being placed right right at the turning point of where we are in the text, somewhere between Genesis 10 and Genesis 12. And it's interesting because Matt, you know, has, has drawn attention to the, uh, you know, that little, that phrase that cues a reference to the divine council, let us go down. And what do you have in the opening verses of the book of Job? Uh, divine council meeting. Lo and behold, it's God. a divine yeah. council meeting. Yeah. So, so if you're reading the, the Bible through, um, and you're reading it as we have it today, like it, just any English Bible and you pull it off the shelf, the first reference to let us is going to be obviously found in Genesis and Genesis chapter 1 and let us make man in our own image and then Genesis 3, mankind has become like one of us and then we have Genesis 11, which is let us go down. There is one more us that I'm aware of and that's Isaiah 6 which is, for instance, who will go for us in what we believe another divine council meeting. But, but if you're so if you're operating from can I can the, I just the, admit on the air I have never thought about that in Isaiah six. Oh, okay. Uh, I Pardon the sound of my mind ago. blowing in the background <laughs> that, 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 <laughs> because it's, that's such a significant instance in Isaiah six, and I'm just over here. Part y'all. Pay no mind to the implosion noise in the background. <laughs> Man, Isaiah 6 is huge. All right, oh, keep, I know. Going. keep going. I know. Keep going. I know. Never mind. A- keep going. <laughs> okay, I know. Mind. So- I- have I even read the Bible? <laughs> Isaiah <laughs> oh, 6 is huge. So, okay. But, but anyway, before I had the tools in the bag to even ask the question, could the us language be anything other than the Trinity? 
because that's just how I took it. Growing up, it's like, who's the us? Well, that's the Trinity. Oh, okay. Well, the Trinity is true. We know that. So that fits because, hey, you know, theology has a nice little bow and stuff like that. But that doesn't really fit the narrative and the other dots that are out there. And because if that becomes the Trinity, then you have some real significant outlier passages. Like, what do you do with these sons of God in Job? But there's another one, if you're just reading the Bible through, that will occur before that. And it's 1 Kings 22. So before we get to Job, That's I want to talk one. about this. I want to talk about this whole idea of a divine council. So um, when I think council meeting, I can just imagine Gandalf, Gandalf sitting amongst the the men there in Rivendell, you know, around the Fellowship of the Ring. Except instead Ooh. of instead of Gandalf, you know, you know the I, gray. I'm thinking Gandalf. I will Savage. take the ring to Mordor. <laughs> that's that's right. Just just blowing those those sailboats out of my pipe. <laughs> that, that's right. Exactly. Um, but in First Kings 22, we read about this whole divine council. So we don't we don't have time to unpack this whole thing today, but the context of 1 Kings 22 is this, is that there are two kings. There is an evil king, Ahab, over the northern kingdom of Israel. This is after the split between the southern and northern kingdoms. And then there is a good king, King Jehoshaphat, and they are trying to decide of whether or not they're going to go to battle together and what happens is, is the you don't king, have enough kids named Jehoshaphat. You just don't. Yeah, and he was a great king. <laughs> so, so anyway, they're trying to figure out whether or not they need to go into battle. And Ahab really wants Jehoshaphat to go into battle with him. But Jehoshaphat is up there, and they're both sitting on their thrones next to each other. They're in a court setting, interestingly enough. And... Jehoshaphat just says, hey, could could we like ask a, a prophet here? Well, so King Ahab has like 400 prophets brought in and they all say, go up and God's going to give the land to you and you're going to be successful. But something apparently wasn't passing the smell test because in 1 Kings 22 verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, is there not another prophet of the Lord whom we may inquire. I and don't trust I, these dudes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I need a second opinion. I need, these I need, these uh, are known yes men. That, that's that's right. So what's Enter funny? Micaiah. Yeah, what's funny? Verse 8. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, and this is this is so funny. The Bible, you can't tell me the Bible's not filled with irony and humor. This is <laughs> and the king, this is Ahab, said uh, of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never <laughs> prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let the king, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Judah were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenna, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with all these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So all that's happening 
Here's what happens when they go fetch Micaiah. And the messenger who went oh, to summon Micaiah. Oh, by the way, you're not the first one. Everyone else has spoken. This is what we're going with. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No pressure. I, yeah, I love this. So the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets are with one accord, are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. And <laughs> Micaiah pulls a John the Baptist. As the Lord lives, the Lord will say to me that what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it to the hand of the king. So this is hilarious to me because Nathan, what does he say next in verse 16? I've done a lot of reading. Yeah. So verse 16, Micaiah gives the favorable report, uh, but the king responds, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but truth in the name of the Lord? I love this voice, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it's good. It's good. Oh, I, I should have channeled Ian McKellen doing Gandalf since you mentioned the Bilbo Baggins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. Anyway, so the king pushes back on Micaiah, right? Right. He, he's right. used to getting bad news from this time, but now Micaiah has been pressured to giving him good news. And the king's like, yeah, that's not the type of stuff that I hear from you. And so he says, only speak. The king, ironically, asks, say, only speak what the Lord actually gives you to say. And then you get this very different report, right? Right. I saw. So Micaiah says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Mm, that should make us think of the New Testament. And the sure. Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you? <laughs> did I this not so tell funny. you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? He tried to give you good under coercion. <laughs> what his um, itching ears wanted to hear. And then it's so interesting to your point, Matt, what Micaiah says after that in uh, uh, 19. Yes. Verse this is 19. where the divine council comes in. There is a heavenly reality, a heavenly throne room mirroring the earth rea earthly reality. Um, mm. By the way, I mean, this is this is the way we used to design sanctuaries, right? Like in the shape of a cross, because it was understood that the earthly worship space was mirroring a heavenly reality. Yeah, I mean, oh, you, yeah. Have, you have that all throughout the Bible. Uh, anyway, um, 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23, it's terribly interesting. And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. Uh, again, one of the most important terms for the Lord in the Old Testament is Yahweh Tzavot, the Lord of hosts. hosts. The hosts are the divine council, also called the sons of God. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab and who may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another thing. So God is farming this job out, not because he has to, because this is how God chooses to operate. Uh, Dude, I'm here, here, I am hearing Isaiah 6 here. Who will yeah. go for us? And now that I'm thinking about Isaiah 6 since I, for the very first time, I too am thinking Isaiah 6, yeah. Um, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, of all of these, your prophets. 
uh, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. So God works through, in this passage, God works through heavenly agents who then in turn work through earthly agents to bring about a certain result. This is literally the Godfather. Like God just put out a hit on this guy. It's actually Father God. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, God the Father. Yeah. Um, I can yeah. just I can just see like um, just God on his throne. Like, what are we gonna do about this guy? How are we gonna <laughs> make gonna this look him? like an accident? All right. So, <laughs> so, but so so it. It, one of the things that Heiser talks about, he calls this a heavenly staff meeting. And of course, we have all kinds of shades of uncomfortable when you talk about God having a staff meeting to come with ideas, come up with ideas about how you he is going to navigate a crisis in humanity. Not a crisis for him, but, you know, a situation because uh, there are no crises with God. But um but even there, I'm using what I know about God. I'm using my theology to mitigate my uncomfortableness with this passage. I caught myself mm. in the act. The narrative makes me uncomfortable because I believe in a sovereign, all-powerful God, and yet here is a sovereign, all-powerful God opening the floor for suggestions in a divine council meeting, which I haven't read about since Genesis chapter 11. And man, that just makes me feel uncomfortable. It did then; it still does, even now, to some degree. But it's here in the text. So, well, it's, and it's, it's just because, uh, again, because the imagery is not everywhere, and because you know the less ubiquitous it is, the less likely we are to connect the dots between the passages in which we see it. We just we 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 have statements of God's sovereignty everywhere, right? No doubt. And so when you don't have explicit mentions of the sons of God over and over again, when you don't have explicit mentions of the divine counsel over and over again, it's a lot easier for us to just export all the overt references to God's sovereignty, power, and might, and read those on top of uh, passages, even the ones that happen to mention the sons of God, the heavenly host, and the divine counsel. Mm. So can Um, I just say that... um, our view of sovereignty, I think, is heavily, heavily influenced by the, the, the romantic notion we have of the strong men of history, that we love to believe that there's just one all-powerful person doing everything. Like, I was reading an article here recently about the all-powerful coach. Uh, in college football. This, this notion that, you know, you have like a Nick Saban at Alabama. He knows everything. He knows everything, and he's con- everything. He's actually responsible for it. Well, he has a team of coaches that he's working through. And Nick, Nick Saban is a great coach, but he's not sovereign. So here, here's what I'm getting at: the Bible does teach that God is all powerful. God does know everything, and God is working through all things. But this passage shows us that He chooses to work through His creation, and that's not just His earthly creation, but His heavenly creation. So if a sovereign, all-powerful God chooses to work through other characters, other people that he is creating or other beings that he has created and working through their free will because they're free agents, but he is still working through him because he knows all things. I mean, that doesn't make him less sovereign. God doesn't have to be doing everything personally to be sovereign. God can rule and reign in sovereignty 
over all affairs and still be working through other independent beings. No, and, and to I, me, I, I, yeah, I keep that's coming. actually a higher view of that's sovereignty. It. That to me, that's it. That's it. God working through other agents, both heavenly and earthly, to accomplish his means is not a lower view of sovereignty. It is a higher view of sovereignty. God's sovereignty uh, means that God guarantees whatever results he speaks. Right. If God well, says it's curious it, to me. If yeah. God says it, it's going to happen. And Matt, you know, uh, and maybe even on the show, I don't know if we have or not, I've talked about chess, right? Mm-hmm. You have two rows of pieces that make for a near infinite possible uh, possibility in terms of combinations of moves. The the sovereign chess player is is the one who's going to get checkmate every single time, without having to touch all of his opponent's pieces. Right. Uh, in other words, whatever combination of factors he faces, he's he's going to say checkmate at the end of it. You know, if, if if we if we got old Bobby Fisher, no, Bobby Fisher died. If we got Gary Kasparov or uh, you know Carlos Magnuson, and we set up the board a thousand times, I know how to play chess. But they're going to beat me a thousand times without ever touching the pieces on my side of the board. Now, certainly, right. we do have some places in Scripture where it looks like God's sovereignty uh, functions more deterministically, but no doubt, you have so many places in Scripture. I mean, I mean, First Kings twenty-two. They're making different cases for how they're going to get the job that God wants done to get done. It's weird that we we view this divine counsel idea or that they're, they're all trying to vie for different ideas and God is consulting with them as being uncomfortable because it is, you know, you first time you hear it, it's kind of weird. But that's strange because we all believe that God uses us mortal beings mm. in his plan, but we don't think we don't view that as lessening his sovereignty. So... So it's just it's it's just one of those things, right? If you you're building on assumptions about God's sovereignty and it, and it colors how you view stories in the Bible. And so, and also, it's working towards what end? If the end is a goal, or if the end is a task, then your actions that you do are working towards that end. Let me explain. I'm a pastor of a church that has multiple staff members. According to the organizational chart of our church, I don't have to ask for their input on anything. Now, certainly I'm not sovereign. I'm not comparing myself to God. But let's just talk for just a minute. I was about to say, remember all those things we said about Nimrod. <laughs> exactly. I don't, I, I'm not sovereign. I'm not God. But, I, but this would be true of not just a pastor, any leader of any organization anywhere. All right? I do not, according to the organizational chart, I do not have to involve the people that are under me at all. However, I choose to. And the reason is, is because my goal is not a task. My goal is a relationship. I'm wanting us to be growing as a community, a family of faith more. I'm right now we're in the middle of a building project at our church. I want that building project done. Yes. But I'm way more interested and invested and our church and our staff team growing together as a family and as a community of faith that I am about getting to the finishing of the building because the priority is relationship. And I think why is God a sovereign God choosing to use created beings to get his job done? And I think this is John 17 coming through here because God wants community 
with his creation. He wants family. He wants to share the, the, the sovereignty fleshed out the way it is, the fact that he works through people and he works through spiritual beings, is, I think, telling us God works this way because this is what he wants with us. He doesn't want us to do something for him. He wants us to be a part of what he is doing. And I think this is the essence of the Bible. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. No, no uh, to me, I, and to me, I, well, I to me, those, to me, God, us doing something for God, I have no problem with that last language of the Westminster, you know, uh, confession of faith. What is the chief purpose of man to uh, to enjoy God and glorify Him forever? Um, yes, uh, if I stated that correctly, I stated mm-hmm. it quickly, so I'm not sure how I said it. Uh, but I, I have no purpose with that. Uh, but the things that we do for God are one in, are one and the same with what God created to do through us, right? right. It delights him to make use of all his creation, not just the static bits of it. I think of the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. And actually in Greek, it's 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 the other way around. Os in uranos kepiges, as in heaven, so also on the earth. Well, if we have if we have concrete images that come to mind of God working through people to accomplish his purposes on earth, why would there not be a corresponding heavenly reality for that? And if Even it's, going if it's, back to Genesis, God planted a garden, and guess what? He made a man to tend the garden. Don't you think if God created the garden that he could have taken care of it himself? Why did he choose to use mm. man? It's because mankind would be able to walk and talk with him in the garden. God desired relationship, not because he was in need of it. It's because he wanted to. And that is that we are made for relationship. Uh, that is, I think, this reoccurring theme. If God chooses to do this... It's because this is what God wants, to glorify Him and enjoy Him, like you're saying with the the Westminster Confession. And to the and to the point of last week's episode, you know, where we closed on Psalm eighty two, where God was standing in judgment over the gods, the lowercase G plural Elohim. Um, Mm -hmm. It was for not being good stewards of that which was entrusted to them. Ah, yeah, that's a great reminder. uh, if people can rebel against the purposes of God, it suggests likewise, uh, even though there are different consequences and possibilities for redemption, right? Sure. Um, uh, but if people can rebel against the purposes of God, it suggests that uh, members of the divine council potentially could do so as well. So um, I know that and there's a few we of you haven't listening. really gotten to Job. <laughs> no, but this is set up. That's why we're going to have to, of course, take another episode to get to Job. Did you really expect anything different? Right. <laughs> but uh, haven't you been listening for, this whole time? For some of us, one does not is... simply talk about the divine counsel in Job. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So for some of us, though, that this divine counsel stuff, perhaps this is the first episode you've just you have found us for some reason perusing through podcasts, and this is the first time you've ever heard of the divine counsel. And your mind is like, what is going on here? Um, so I would encourage you to listen to the other episodes that led up to this one, all 53 of them. But um, there is a – every now and again, our mind does have a paradigm shift. In fact, it, just by way of illustration, Gandalf actually blew my mind this week. I mentioned this earlier, and I wanted him to get this on here. The things that we think we know are so often built on assumptions. And a, of what and a we small think we tweak in an assumption know. can paradigm shift the whole oh, thing. Like yes. what we're seeking to know is often built 
on an assumption of what we already believe we know. And often we are not even aware that what we believe we know is an assumption. And that occurred for me this week of uh, uh, this when Gandalf suggested to me that it is possible that the starlight we see in the sky may not be old after all. So take it away, well, Gandalf. So, he, so we're basically where this comes from is that Einstein famously defined the speed of light as, as C, right? That's the notation for the speed of light. And he basically said, we, we don't know what the speed of light is. We can only measure the round trip. But for the sake of my theory on relativity, we're just going to say that the speed of light travels the same direction forward as it does backwards. And all of the physics that we use now based off of Einstein's theory of relativity are based off of the idea that light travels the same way forward in one direction as it does back to return. But there has never, ever been an experiment done where someone was able to measure the one-way speed of light. All we can do is we can measure the, the round trip and then divide it in half. And that's how we get away with saying the speed of light is, you know, this many thousand meters per second. Right. But, but all of our assumptions are based off of Einstein's assumption that the speed of light is the same forwards and backwards. But we may one day get to the point where that assumption becomes insufficient for trying to understand the universe. And it could be that that was the missing puzzle piece the whole time stopping us from seeing the bigger picture. So it is very, it is not impossible to believe that when you look up and see the stars at night, that you're actually seeing them in real time because the light traveling from them to you may be instantaneous, but the light traveling from us to them is actually the speed of light. There's no way to prove it one way or the other. Right. And that's and that's kind of what we're saying with the assumptions about God's sovereignty here and how he works. If you go into it with the assumptions that God do, will not use other people because he is sovereign, then you read these passages and it becomes uncomfortable. But that's an assumption, though. Right. And it's, we, as we've seen, it's one that's not necessarily true. Mm. Yeah. Mind blown again. And... Just, just like the wise King Jehoshaphat, if you would like to add another Bible podcast to the list of ones that you listen to, <laughs> I highly recommend subscribing to this one. And I promise we will only deliver good news because it's from the Bible. <laughs> there you go. We, we, will never, we will never prophesy against you. Every Tuesday, right here, Spotify, you hit like, iTunes, you hit subscribe, whatever platform you're listening to, please give us that feedback and it helps us spread the podcast farther. So we'll see you here next week, every Tuesday. Have a good week. See you next time. Shalom. Okay, I thought that was good.